This episode of the Noble Warrior Podcast is brought to you by C.K. Lynn Mindset Coaching for Entrepreneurs. Whatever mental blocks in your life you want to overcome as an entrepreneur, fears of failure, inability to take the actions you know there is to take, fear of success, three steps forward and four steps back, or even that thought of not feeling deserving after achieving all the success. Coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. C.K. Lin has the skills that will empower you to achieve the most accelerated results you've dreamed of. To help you get started, C.K. is offering podcast listeners a free strategy session with him, a $1,000 value. Visit TalkWithCK.com and schedule your free session today. I'm really excited and energized by the amount of interest about this whole intersection of psychedelics, meditation, and technology. And I'm really inspired by also the fact that these are a group of really smart and motivated people. So it's not just some random people interested in this, but these are conscientious, uh, entrepreneurs, investors, scientific researchers, therapists, all coming together, really keen on the convergence of all these topics. So, so that's the number one takeaway is like I'm getting excited by the fact that other smart people are really excited about this too. The second takeaway from that is um, there's a little bit of a creative chaos there, so, which is good you know, as in any kind of new movement. Uh, there's not a, a lot of questions, but not, not a lot of people have clear vision and or answers to this. So I think there's still room for new ideas, new thoughts, new leaders, uh, new opportunities to emerge from all this energy. So these are my top two takeaways. And of course, meeting you, meeting like-minded people um, that I actually have a resonance with. Um, that's, to me, the biggest uh, takeaway with all of these type of gatherings. Yeah, thanks. I Look, I... You know, I overlap strongly on that. Uh, I certainly on on you know on your second one about having this idea of you know it feels like a lot of people gathering and um, either because of a sense of something. I mean, they're just you know becoming present about trying to solve a problem that is feels like it's on everybody's uh, tip of their tongue, but nobody has quite yet. Um, verbalize exactly what what that is and what the end goal is but I think that we're all drawn for different reasons to consider that something extremely worthy whether it is you know purely to think about healing or about growing or about wisdom or about you know so many other things that may be attracting people including just a general curiosity about making progress in an area that has not made progress in a while so um People, for sure, you know, I, I travel a lot and it's, uh, and I'm very, very picky with the people I engage with. Uh, and I have to say that I was uh, overwhelmed by the number of uh, individuals that I was able to uh, engage with and, and respect, uh, you know, intellectually and personally. Um, so, uh, you know, overall, it was a, it was a terrific event on, on so many fronts. Mm. Why don't you actually say more, a little bit more about that, about the meeting people part? Because one thing that you did say as, as, as you 
you get older, get more successful, your time is still the same, right? Everyone still have 24 hours and seven days. And as such, you need to be a little choosier about who you want to surround yourself with, who you want to engage with, who you want to you know, get new ideas from. So what are some of your mental models, your criteria in terms of which events to go to or who you want to engage with? Do you have, can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, and, you know, and it's getting, you know, I was talking about with a friend and it's kind of funny that, you know, sometimes you may feel, uh, you know, you're in an environment and, and you know, your, your gut response is, I, I don't really know why I'm at this event and I don't know what these people are talking about. I don't know what I'm doing here. So that was definitely not the case in this instance. Uh, I think it's a question, you know, as regards people, I uh, have a very low tolerance for BS of any sort. And that includes just people who have not queried uh, themselves deeply and, and, and therefore are sort of masquerading uh, to an extent or another something that they, they don't want to show. So I, you know, I love engaging with people who have been able to transcend that a little bit and are open uh, and uh, both uh, giving and also demonstrating a certain, uh, you know, ability to, to, you know, to open up to people that they haven't met before. And that's, that's hard and it's, uh, it's sadly rare, uh, you know, and this uh, people who are on a path of, of kind of, uh, you know, just wanting to engage uh, truthfully, wanting to uh, maybe go on a path that I like to, to think is about wisdom, about thinking about life, about how we make things, why things are the way they are, how we can make them better. Um, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for uh, you know, almost 30 years now, and uh, that's always been on my mind. I think that's the great thing about entrepreneurs, the focus is always on making something better or, see, or having an ability to uh, see something that other people don't see as to either that is not working properly so both having the ability to see what's not working properly and simultaneously having the ability to come up with an idea that could make those things better. Um, so there were, you know, any number of those people at, at the event that are really driven, passionate, uh, you know, where there's kind of an integrated approach between their, you know, the mind, the heart and the gut where you can see and sense that it's something deeply personal that is driving them to, to do what they're doing. Um, and as I said, that's something I'm, I'm incredibly drawn to, that, uh, that passion, that authenticity. Uh, and something that, you know, we need a little bit more of. So are there any specific events or conferences or groups that you have found to have a higher probability of meeting such people and have such conversations or, and or engage in such uh, ventures together? Um, not really. I mean, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, mean, the, the, I wouldn't single out uh, any any event. Uh, you know, I think that we've done the the uh, I pretty much attended every uh, technology conference uh, of of uh, uh, meaning. You know, TED obviously will be at the top of my list once a year. I've done any number of summits. Uh, now this, and I'm beginning to do smaller events um, that, that people have, have engaged. You will always find, uh, or you know, I've been lucky to, 
to never leave empty-handed. I always am able to connect with somebody that I think uh, presents that, but maybe not the, the entire event. And so for me, it's rare to have both the ability for the organizers of the event, uh, as well as the attendees and the speakers to really be very aligned. Uh, you know, I still see too frequently that uh, the organization of the event can be driven by, you know, it's a business and we're here to draw as many people with as many great ideas as possible and we need to put some monkeys on the stage so I can attract these people. And, you know, and, and so, you know, that's definitely not what I'm, I'm interested in. Uh, I have to say that this, uh, you know, this past conference was one where I was really very taken by uh, the synthesis of the three groups, so the organization, uh, the speakers, and the attendees, all seemingly extremely well aligned, and, uh, and that's also, I mean, it really is quite unique from uh, from other events that I've attended. So, I have to share something myself, right? <clears throat> well, I don't have to, I get to. Um, one of the things I really love to go to events exactly as you said. It's not so much for the content, although that may be sexy and interesting, like, ooh, I wonder what, who so-and-so is gonna say. But most importantly for me is these type of, you know, off the side conversations and, and chance encounters. And in the beginning of my own journey to go into conferences is very, I try to be as calculated, calculating and strategic as possible. Uh, but these days I just go with an intention of actually connect uh, deeply with one or two or three people um, because I trust that, uh, this is my belief, um, whoever I meet is just perfect. I don't need to go seek or strive to meet someone. Uh, if, it, if that happens, of course, happy to do that. But um, when I go to conference these days, it's more organic. So I'm curious to know your journey in just go even just meeting other human beings in general, uh, do you take on that same approach or is it more strategic, more calculating and then lay out things? No, I, I, was, I was smiling uh, while you were describing that because I cannot recall a single event that I've ever been to where I've had any sort of agenda or plan. I, I really am very intuitive about that and I believe that uh, if I have to to meet certain people will happen. I do agree with you that uh, stating an intention, I think, is very helpful um, coming into it, so or at least being very clear about what you're bringing to to that event and not so much what you want to get out of the event mm. uh, helps helps a lot. Mm. And the, you know, in the context of this particular in a conference, it was amazing to just have you know any number of synchronicities about saying you know, let's say, have you met so and so for argument's sake? And it happened that you know three or four other people had told me exactly the same thing. So I was like, okay, I think I need to talk to so and so. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, so there's definitely uh, you, you feel almost you you know there's a there's a connection across the group, and you can sense certain. Um, ways of thinking, of being, uh, that somehow draws you to, to very like-minded people. Uh, and, uh, and you just need to be attuned to that. Mm. So I want to come back to your own journey a little bit, because I, let me 
share you know to the people who are listening a little bit you've been an entrepreneur for 30 days as not 30 days 30 years rather uh you have achieved Almost, yeah. right achieved certain level of success and now you have exited from the business and effectively you're looking to see what's next what are the other opportunities what the, what are the, the new passions that you can tap into so in in many ways um, other entrepreneurs especially new ones are looking at you like oh wow andrew's made it right <clears throat> he's achieved what i wanted in 10 20 30 however many years so to me entrepreneurship is the one of the ultimate transformational journey that you can take on right so now that you have quote unquote arrived to a major milestone what could you share with us about your own journey from day one of being an entrepreneur to now 30 years later uh, from the perspective of what have you learned you know the, the secret of being an entrepreneur well look i'll you know probably start more from from the end you know i think at the core i'm probably not staying the you know the probably the earliest business you know starting you have different ideas you know you want to you have an idea that you think is cool or unique you're excited about it you go that way as you as you evolve you know your thinking evolves with it and as the size of the business evolves you you also grow with that i think that one of the critical elements on this uh, you know my last business uh, which i spent uh, you know over 15 years building with an amazing team an amazing partner and uh, and really just uh, you know just exited has been more about getting to a stage of where the business and myself just very aligned uh from the perspective that you know i'm not we never built a business to exit per se we were also very um distinct in that we we never raised any money we never had any debt uh we <clears throat> ran a fully virtual organization uh we tended to you know people ask me what do you do and towards the end of the last few years i pretty much said you know we nurture misfits because we love to find <clears throat> these remote passionate people about topics that you know nobody else seems to really care about and they care deeply about and those <clears throat> are the things that i really i really love to engage with uh, with people that are like-minded who, and I really don't care what the passion is. It could be virtually anything. I just want to see that that, that element is there. And there's something about <clears throat> the moment you go deep into a subject and you you explore explore its richness. Um, you know, the, there's you, you know you cannot help but be a little bit awed in, in what happens in the process. So it's it's that's the journey. So that and part of the the element. Um, with myself as, as the entrepreneur in the mix is you know not only one of, uh, of growing myself but about having the business as a structure that is a, an expression of myself uh, and that helps me to grow in the process and it's kind of a feedback loop you know as you learn you, you help the organization to learn more and to evolve um, and that's probably the, the most rewarding part of the journey the financial part of course, uh, always plays a role, but I could argue that certainly for the last three years or so, um, you know, I've lived in a state of, you know, being extremely uh, grateful for, for any number of things. And uh, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I had already reached a, a stage of, 
you know, of contentment uh, on the financial side, you know, I didn't really, so now it's, uh, uh, you know, with a full exit and a very meaningful exit, then, you know, there are certain, I feel that new challenges, new responsibilities open up and uh, that allow me to continue to do some of the things that, that I've been meaning to do for, for a long time. So in my personal case, I felt that the financial portion of the journey was an important one and that I had, and I've been thinking about this for a very long time, I always felt that, you know, that my journey would be one of uh, reaching a certain level of, of financial success and then being able to use that position to then uh, impact areas that, that are of interest or concern of mine. Uh, and obviously now uh, the entire consciousness part is, is one that is of great interest and that's why I'm getting more more involved, exposing myself, sharing ideas, sharing experiences uh, and that. So really, you know, how much wisdom and all of that? Well, a lot, you know, I think I, lately I synthesize it, um, you know, in, in as few nuggets as possible. Certainly, you know, the way we operated the business was about focusing on Number one, you know, was keeping, keep the business going. Number two, keep the business growing, uh, but never forget about number one, uh, particularly as, you know, we can have a fallback position as a, uh, as a fully private non-funded company. Uh, but at the same time, we, we never uh, did not have a profit. We, we've been profitable every year since inception. So clearly that was something that we were doing. Uh, also, just the way that we like to operate, we, we held the belief, for the longest part, fairly unconscious, but any number of things that we did demonstrated that, that I believe in, you know, in value creation. So we're very focused and constantly investing in making our products better um, and the services that we offer and, and to have as much of what I was mentioning earlier, to find people who are genuinely passionate about what they do. Uh, and what we found in the process, particularly with an online business, that the one thing you can't fake online is passion and authenticity. So that actually became a, a competitive edge of ours as well to see that our team was free to be as creative as possible. And that's the way, you know, this, this nurturing environment for them. And the second one is to do, so to, to enable this value creation with as many values as we could bring to the table. You know, I have certain beliefs about how we treat people, types of people we find, uh, you know, we're not looking for the Ivy League uh, Superman, etc. We actually, you'll, you'll find that we have people who are incredible, well, they're incredible individuals, but they're incredibly normal individuals, I would say that. And they're also, and that's what each of us, you know, I hold the title of also, you know, chief misfits in our business. And some people, you know, would approach me and say, Andrew, you know, we're not quite sure about this. Misfit title, it seems, you know, I don't know how I feel, but I said, no problem, you know, I'll, I'll take the chief misfit. I don't have a problem with that. And, and really, I feel very strongly. I may not look, you know, a little bit normal on the outside, but I promise to you that deep inside, I'm, I'm just the same misfit that they are. And, and if it's misfit in the way that they look, if the, they, they think, or so on and so forth, it doesn't really matter. Uh, that's, you know, that's what we've been looking at. So the, this combination of creating value and delivering it with values is something that we've seen has an incredible resonance uh, in the U.S. market, uh, and 
And it sounds oversimplistic, but I would argue that uh, anybody can truly um, deliver that consistently over a long period of time uh, can, will, will get rewarded uh, because that's exactly what the system uh, seems to lack. But mm. people realizing that uh, you, know, you care deeply about something and you're not there. To uh, you're not designing everything to extract value from mm. from people you engage with. So we're very focused on, you know, we believe we're okay with the idea that we're going to give you something first, and if you feel that we've done a good job, then please give us something back. But it's mm. really up to you the way that you engage. And I remember, you know, in the early days, I mean, literally, I was a one-man show. Uh, so this goes back about 15 years ago. And uh, I was getting attacked quite badly for trying to monetize my blog at the time. And, you know, and I was one of the first bloggers who became successful, really making a substantial amount of money from his blog. And, you know, I know if somebody or a group of people decided that it was just not cool and that they were going to let me know about it. And it became so intense at one point that I really thought, you know, maybe I, I should stop. Um, and then out of the blue, I got an email from somebody saying, hey, Andrew, you know, I love the blog. Uh, could you help me out? I'm looking for, for this product. I forget what it was. And I took about 15 minutes to, to reply back to him. Uh, he almost immediately, you know, responded back and said, Andrew, you know, thanks so much for taking the time uh, and the recommendation. I really appreciate it. And, blah, blah, blah. and at the end, just the one line, I said, now, please, could you let me know? where I should click on your website so that you can get a commission on my purchase. And I had this epiphany. I understood, you know, from that exchange, I understood what the real relationship was that I was creating with the audience. And the real audience that I was wanted to engage with was people like him who understood that there was just an exchange and that they were willing and to share and to give back in return. And so I said, okay, there's going to be some free riders. There's going to be people who don't care or, or, uh, or don't like me or, or whatever. And I, I was fine with that because I understood or felt that the majority of people were there uh, in, a, in a very balanced exchange of, of what was happening. And I was being very, um, you know, I felt I was being very honest uh, in, in what I was bringing to the table. So, mm. uh, and really the, that seeded a lot of the thinking for the rest of it. And I was just focused on saying, okay, just, share the passion, share the ideas, find more people, keep building, keep growing and, and end up somewhere. Uh, and we ended up uh, in, a, in an interesting place in our industry with companies that had, you know, raised up to 50 million or more uh, dollars and uh, where we were more profitable than they were, uh, having raised zero. So really, uh, you know, this is not, and I take a small portion of the credit for, for having started the journey and, and things like that, and, and obviously continue to do certain things. But ultimately, it was uh, you know really amazing team effort from from everybody involved, uh, which is probably also an important learning, certainly from where I started. Um, the idea, you know, I think in my case, uh, you know, the idea of this uh, genius solo uh, Superman entrepreneur uh, didn't apply. Uh, I found an amazing business partner uh, where we had extremely shared business value. Um, we found many other people like that across, and ultimately it was really just a, you know an amazing team and culture that we built in the process that really made things successful. And I think that that's 
something that uh, you know is is not as often celebrated as the the individual hero. So I feel more that uh, you know I'm uh, you know there's a, there's a leadership role, there's a mentorship, stewardship, but uh, uh, there's there's also an incredible day to day work from an amazing team of people in that. So um, thanks for sharing that. So I have a follow up question there because what you so number one, let me address one thing. So. There's a reason why we connect so well because I really resonated with what you said about being a misfit. So, because you know, part of my being is I don't feel quite understood by others. So, there's misfit to another misfit. Awesome. You bet. And only misfits really understand other misfits. There you go. Yeah. So, but but to your point of actually just charting the path, following your passion, and then just have that faith and trust that hey, what you're providing is a fair value exchange to the people that you serve and. But in the beginning part of it, uh, I wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit because it's easy to look back and say, "Yeah, I always knew that this was going to turn out right." But in the beginning part of it, um, for a lot of people listening, myself included, is, "Hey, we are charting the path, following my passion, following my principles." But there's not a whole lot of uh, positive feedback coming in, right? So then, in that moment, how did you uh, sustain your faith that this was the right thing to do, even though there wasn't a whole lot of movement or momentum coming back just yet? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, and and we're talking about this last business, so I'll, I'll focus on the beginning of this last business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an interesting situation because really, I was doing, uh, I had. Uh, so just about three years prior to starting uh, my last business, uh, I uh, resigned from from managing a company, uh, and it was I was only an, an, an employee of uh, for two and a half years of two different businesses, uh, kind of transition. But I realized very quickly that I'm just I make a very lousy employee, um, so uh, and, and that I'm only comfortable, um, you know running my own destiny, so to speak. Um, and it's not about not getting along with people. I just feel, you know, I've always been very uh, driven by, you know, an individual mindset and about wanting to have that freedom. Um, and, you know, the three years prior then where it became, you know, I had a very interesting package, you know, I had helped a company IPO, but nothing, you know, I was by no means wealthy. I was moderately comfortable. And ultimately, ended up investing all of the money in trying to set up different ventures. I, you know, probably the two that were of most interest to me, and that, that ultimately seeded uh, the ideas for this business was, you know, one is I wanted to to either run a Netflix in the UK, and if that didn't work, then to set up a competing uh, play to to Netflix in the UK. I mean, there was some unique aspect that had a deep understanding that Netflix was going to radically alter the, the landscape. Uh, and uh, I was one of the earliest people to, to, to kind of bring that out. Uh, and I was based in the UK at the time. Um, but I engaged, you know, I did a lot of work on so many different fronts that then I looked at TiVo, you know, the entire, you know, DVR revolution, etc. but really became very enmeshed in everything that I would label, um, digital entertainment convergence and I became an, an expert in, in that area. Uh, really early advent you have to uh, 
remember that uh, you know the first smartphone had not yet been released then and what i would call the earliest uh, smartphone was probably the the um handspring visor uh, was just around the corner and uh, but for some reason you know the ideas were great i had amazing engagement i was able to learn a lot in the process i had uh, i was able to be exposed to some big ideas with some big people but ultimately none of the stuff that i was working on uh, uh, led to anything uh, and obviously over the three years you know money uh, had been had been taken down and i was really running uh, pretty much empty. I actually ended up, uh, you know, substantial uh, credit card debt, and uh, but I I still held that the, the the idea that you know this was what I needed to do. So out of frustration with some of the, you know, this lack of of movement on the B two B side that I was doing, I decided to. Uh, you know, a friend uh, was running a, a large blogging company uh, in Europe, and he said, "Well, why don't you start blogging?" And I said, "Okay, fine." So you know, I needed something to talk about, so I started blogging on a B two B basis about all the ideas of entrepreneurship, about uh, you know what I felt was happening in the particular um, area of digital entertainment convergence. And out of the blue, really, I just nonstop. My phone would not stop ringing. ringing. A lot of support for my ideas, etc. A lot of inbound calls from the U.S. Uh, the likes, you know, Best Buy, Walmart, and so on and so forth. Kind of everybody saying, you know, we'd really love to work with you, and so on and so forth. But it, I was really getting to the end. I mean, the, the maximum of my frustration about B two B environment and B two B in itself had never been my passion. I mean, my real passion is the B two C market. I love engaging at the consumer level. It's something I understand very well. So. I kind of said, you know, I became curious. I said, well, it's interesting that out of the blue now, I'm getting so much interest on the B2B front. And I said, you know, I wonder what the B2C uh, market, how the B2C market might respond. But then again, I needed something to talk about. So I, was, I think at the time I was reading an issue of Inc. Magazine and, and they had an ad for the Palm Trio, uh, which was for me the coolest first smartphone, really just radically uh, and I had this eureka moment where everything that I had been working for the last three years I understood that the future of this digital entertainment convergence I've been taking, uh, talking about was going to happen on this device and so I had a wealth of ideas and knowledge about that and I just started writing and really it took off uh, very rapidly um, and then you know my friend Loic who was, who was running this, uh, this blog company uh, you know, would you know call me up once a month and say, so Andrew, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, great. And he's like, what are the numbers? And I'm like, well, you know, it's rising. People, more and more people. And I forget where it was. And then would ask me, you know, how are you doing financially? There, I said, well, you know, last month I made, I made zero. So he called me a second month and said, oh, how are you doing? I said, well, I made fifty dollars. And then you'd call me again, month three, and say, how are you doing? Oh, I said, oh, I made five hundred dollars. You know. And so I think he stopped calling me months six or seven when I was doing 5k a month or and then it continued to grow from there and uh, it's like okay I'll stop calling you now I think you're doing fine and, uh, and that was kind of the the launch but I really you know I wouldn't necessarily recommend to people to do what I did which was really very close to you know I kind of had this image that if I failed and I really came very very close to the edge of that precipice that I could, I'm, I might very well end up cleaning streets for the rest of my days. But uh, 
at that particular time, I, I really felt very strongly that if, if I was about, you know, my early 30s, that if I didn't take that decision right there and then, I would not have the opportunity to take that decision again later in life. You know, I would be too beholden to a particular decision that I had made that I would no longer do that. So it, would, it was right there or never. Uh, and I guess I went all the way on that one and felt like almost a, uh, you know, a personal challenge uh, of, uh, you know, life kind of asking me, say, you know, how far would you go for this? And I kind of said, well, I would go all the way. And, uh, and that's when things kind of started turning around. Mm. Again, I really would not recommend that people follow that per se. Mm. Uh, Were you married at the time? In that moment? That? Were you, did you have a family at the time? I did not. No, I was very conscious mm. of that, which was also why I, I was married uh, in my late 30s. I became a father in my early 40s. Um, a lot of it was, was delayed because I was very... Uh, conscious that I was making decisions that were going to have major uh, repercussions and, and have, being in an environment like that where you have major financial repercussions is not something that I felt comfortable envisaging to have a family and have to put them through that. So it's a little bit like driving recklessly. Uh, I feel <laughs> I, I'm okay doing that when I'm alone in the car and hopefully when there's nobody else on the road. Uh, but I would not want to to do that with other people in, in the car. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think that only as I started getting <clears throat> uh, kind of rebuilding uh, financially that I feel comfortable to, to do that uh, in a meaningful way. Mm. So you accumulated a, a lot of knowledge in the, dig, in the digital conversions and then you stumble upon Trio and then you knew that this was a, a trend that's coming and you believed that, you trusted that, you doubled down on the blog and you also happened to have a great support network, Louis, right? Was it his friend? Yeah. Who calls you regularly to provide that, that moral support, that checking in, that accountability and make sure that you don't do um, anything unwise should things uh, should hit the fan, so to speak. Um, and then, and then you follow, and that trend took off, and and here you are. Fast forward, was that would that be a good um, recap of what you shared with us? Very much. I think that there were no, you know, there were other inflection points along the way, but in terms of understanding just the, the liftoff, uh, that was the, you know, it was a very rapid period of about a year where. Uh, you know, from it went from zero to to meaningful liftoff that allowed me to then continue to grow the business on the back of that. And, and, and over fifteen years, it's um, you know the the nice thing for me. And you know, if, if there are people not, I think it was Einstein that said that he felt that the seventh wonder of the world was uh, you know compound interest. So obviously, having the opportunity of a business that runs relatively smoothly there's always been ups and downs but that is profitable consistently over a long period of time and you know we grew organically throughout but um it ended up you know becoming a, a very meaningful business so it was just about maintaining that direction uh going back to what i said earlier so number one keep the business going to keep the business growing but if shit uh, hits the fan at any given time that then okay you stop growing but you you make sure and we had that you know I mean we're talking about a company I mentioned the palm tree as you know the, the uh, key uh, 
product that made our company. And at one point, Palm accounted for 95% of our revenues. Uh, and, and the company imploded very rapidly. I mean, most people who saw us then were like, oh, well, you know, th thanks for all the hard work. You were great, but bye-bye. I mean, you're out of the picture. And, and actually, we weren't because we, we had seen uh, that with the demise of, of Palm, uh, the carriers had increased dependency on BlackBerry. And then you go, oh, BlackBerry, I've heard about that company. And yeah, well, <laughs> it did rather well for also a small period of time. So we went from a 95% dependency on Palm to a 60% dependency on BlackBerry. But then again, BlackBerry disappeared in a very short period of time. But, you know, we had learned and we had, you know, part of we had uh, a very substantial community, you know, uh, tens of millions of people. And <clears throat> our community members were typically much smarter than we were. So they were telling us and saying, hey guys, you know, there's this thing called Android around the corner. It's really important. You should look at it. And we're like, okay. Let's have a look at that. So by the time uh, Crackberry, which was our, uh, our site for, for BlackBerry uh, fans, uh, started to die down, we already had Android Central at the ready for the next loop. So, you know, there were really some major inflection points. It felt like our business was crashing every so often and took about uh, seven years or so. I mean, in, in 2007, we were uh, voted number one fastest uh, growing um, uh, by the Inc. 500 on uh, the e-commerce front because actually to monetize the media that we were creating, we were uh, actually powering e-commerce stores at the, in the beginning. <clears throat> but between 07 and, and, uh, and 2010, 11, I mean, we, you know, the, that entire e-commerce business also. So not only did we have, you know, the media decay, but we had the e-commerce decay and then we had to figure out ways to start monetizing advertising. So it, it's been, you know, a roller coaster. And thankfully for the last five years or so, the, the rate of change, I mean, it's always there, but uh, there, there was enough of, of a lower rate of change for us to maintain a, a much more accelerated growth curve. And then we, we ended up. So it, it was, you know, I'd say, you know, amazing first few years and really think you're on top of it then basically the business almost dies and we but we keep everybody on board and everybody's working but just uh you know keeping the business afloat for maybe another five years and then the last five years uh, uh you know things really start turning around and, uh, and we we build a, a very meaningful business in that third phase so um, let me unpack that a little bit. So what I hear is also cultivate relationship with your end user and then listen to them if you, because they tend to be smarter. And as well as I also hear in between the lines of anticipating change, because one thing that they say, uh, one thing that's constant in life is that change will always happen. No, some. Yeah, yeah, something like so, that, right? So I think on both those fronts, you know, the, the I'll start with the second one. So it, this is very much just on a personal basis. Uh, you know, managing change is kind of my uh, gifts in the sense I really see quite far around the corners. I'm, I'm very, very good strategically. And I had the benefit of not being CEO of the business. I was president of the business and my business partner, um, you know, gave me a lot of leeway to... Uh, explore, wander around, make mistakes. And I just, I just go out, I look, you know, what's happening and how the market is shifting and, and try to get a sense. And then I go back to the team, report back from 
what I sense is coming and how we need to get ready for for the next wave. And, and then obviously I'm not the only one. Other people are also keeping their eyes and ears open and, and they feed that back into the loop. And based on that, we were lucky to um, having experienced all of these things at the beginning to understand that only those who responded very rapidly uh, had a chance of making it. Uh, and, you know, we, for example, with Android, we were actually slightly late. And when I say slightly game, you know, uh, maybe six months. Uh, but that was enough to give room to uh, competitors, early competitors that really had an edge and it took us longer there uh, to regain the leadership position uh, than, than it would otherwise. So we, you know, we continued to learn and understood that really it was critical to our um, survival, to our resilience, to, to be prepared for every time the market changed. Okay, and I'd, I'd say, you know, I sort of joke that pretty much every 18 months or so, we had to be prepared to be running a completely different company to, to, to what we had before and, and either completely different because the revenue sources were different or the mechanics of that revenue creation or there was a dynamic in the market about changing operating systems, you know, whatever it may have been. The second one with the community, superbly important uh, that... You know, we feel, so in a traditional, again, I'm very focused on a, on a B2C environment, you know, traditionally, you need this early adopter uh, crowd uh, who are the ones who are going to be your most fervent supporters, advocates, and so on and so forth. And they kind of help you build the business. And then people go, well, you know, then you go phase two, you cross the chasm, you want a mass market, and, and blah, blah, blah. And then you pretty much leave those early adopters aside because you go, it's, you know, it's too small a market. And it's like, well, thanks for having helped us at the beginning, but really now, you know, we're very focused on this, uh, this mass audience. And I've seen this play out, you know, same, same beef I have with, with Netflix, for example, uh, I've had for the last few years is that, you know, I, I, part of my interest uh, at the, you know, 17 years ago was, I, you know, crazy movie buff and I, Netflix had this amazing engine that you could just, you know, keep hammering at and it was, you know, unbeatable. Uh, and it was very much designed for that uh, power user. You know, if you were a movie buff, there was no better place to go than, than Netflix. Today, it seems to have left that entire market aside. I seem to just lose myself there. I have no clue what to watch. I'm, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm very picky. And so the entire engine that they had previously to do that is no longer there. So you see this happening. So we were very clear that the only way that we could make it from, uh, uh, you know, generation to generation, let's say every 18 months, was with the help and support of that uh, core audience. And so, but we understood that obviously the needs of this core audience, you know, let's call it a power user uh, uh, crowd, and our average user were not the same. So we had to, but we understood that, and we were willing to make an investment and continue to make an investment in that power user base uh, even if we lost money on it or we made no money on it, it didn't matter. We felt very strongly that uh, those were people who had helped us along the way and that we would continue to support. One of the examples is we set up a, a YouTube brand called Mr. Mobile, very popular. Um, and I think he's getting close to, to a million followers now. But, uh, you know, that channel, that brand was created almost entirely to appeal to that our user audience so that they can continue to feel that we were, um, you know, supporting them. And we were, um, 
but where you know we knew that it was going to take a very long time for us to start monetizing that, and so and so we didn't. But um, and so doing that consistently over 15 years, uh, you know, we've gained an enormous amount of goodwill from from that community and, and from other people uh, who've seen. You know, it's it's the famous saying that you know you can fool some people sometimes, you can't fool other people all the time. So uh, you know. Since that was never a game that we had, um, I think you know this also leads me to another point that, that just came up. You know, we felt very strongly uh, that, and I've seen it many times over. Uh, it may be that because of the dynamics that we had of a private business, where really making a bad choice, making a big mistake, uh, was could mean the, the demise of the business. So one thing we're very conscious about from the beginning is that we would not take shortcuts at any time. You know, we would not, if it was an SEO game, we weren't going to play tricks on the SEO to have an advantage in the short term, but really risk the business in the long term. It was like they made no sense. And every time there's always an opportunity, somebody says, ah, oh, you know, we can make more money faster, we can do this. You know, you start thinking about things that are, not, you know, that start veering off your core values or the ones that we had stated internally and we just said no and repeatedly said no and we said we allowed people to kind of say look <laughs> you know this is not what we're after you don't need to go there to try to figure out how you can extract more etc because uh, we believe that you know this will do nothing but ultimately uh, kill our business in the long term so mm. you know it's not going to go there so you had a commitment to stay within your core value rather than playing the gimmicks that's what it sounded like. Yeah, again, yeah, I think it goes back with just being very honest with keeping in line with, with what we're doing. Uh, you know, I mean, again, we're not, we're running a business, everybody's conscious that, uh, you know, should we not be successful financially, then we don't have a business. So it's not about, you know, not doing that. It's just about the way that we do it, doing so in a way that uh, felt uh, true to the ideal that we had about what we wanted to do uh, the level of quality, for example, that we want to deliver to our users or the types of products, whatever it may have been, that we didn't want to stop doing that just mm. because there was a way for us to extract more value um, in the short term. So I have actually two directions that we can go to. I wanted to, 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 to help the people who are listening to this because you're an expert in building brands and building audience, right, based on everything that you share with us. So assuming you actually have no more brands, no lists, no audience that you can leverage, you only have what you know now, like knowing what you know now and nothing else, right? And you're, can you walk us through what tactical things one may do going from zero to a hundred people, right? Kevin Kelly, zero to a thousand true fans, zero to 10,000 and so on and so forth. So that way people actually, they're inspired by the lesson and want to take action, they can actually execute on that what would you say if if someone who's listening to this want to go from zero to hundred to a thousand to ten thousand um look i so the the thing that i would caveat is um you know the operational side i'm you know i'm no longer as acutely aware of mm. how i would go about building a new brand uh, my you know from scratch online today i think it's gotten you know incrementally harder we even find it hard mm -hmm. uh, at our level to introduce a new brand so i'd leave that aside in terms of what i think the core for me okay 
again, assuming that I'm talking about a, a, a B2C environment, yeah. I think that having um, a clarity of vision is, is core um, to, to be able to share that passion about whatever the topic might be. It might be a product, it might be a server, it might be an app, it doesn't really matter. But to, to, to do it in a way that really, being very honest with yourself, you know, you haven't been cutting corners, you're not trying, you know, I've seen the other thing that I personally hate is, is people who go after a market and they, they decide to target the least knowledgeable people in that market because they go, uh, oh, these people don't know anything. So, you know, we can, we can sell them a low value product, uh, but we, you can do the same thing to, to better inform people and, and that audience. So I, I'm a firm believer that you want to, from the get-go, to know that you have a really solid product is you take the most knowledgeable person in that particular field and you put it to a test uh, with him or her, and it, if it passes, then you have a really interesting product. Because mm. in my opinion, if you, or service or solution in general, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't believe that suddenly going after, I mean, it, they're just not interested. I know people who, who do that and run successful businesses, it's just not something I'm interested in. You know, mm -hmm. I believe that. I want to go to, to, to the very top of the pyramid and making sure because if we can if we can pass the lens and the filter of the power user mm. to demonstrate that we really, you know, we've given it our all, we're doing it there, then they're going to be the first people to support you uh, to spread that, that audience. Uh, they may not necessarily interfere to see that there's a poor product on the market and I'll go well obviously there's people who don't know who are buying this thing but if you're doing something that is vetted by that power user audience then they become advocates for, for mm. what you're doing mm -hmm. uh, and as we discussed earlier sadly there are too few examples uh, or, or they're much rarer to find people who go in that direction um, to really push it hard but those are the companies that ultimately really really stand out and make it and you know and i'm not necessarily talking here about you know the, the multi-billion dollar companies you can find more successful companies but of whatever size i i i'm very focused in always um assuming that there's something in what we're doing that you, you want to be as close you know you want to be in the top tier uh a performer you don't need to be the best but you want to have an understand what does it mean there you know so uh, for example design was a very important um, element in our in our growth so we you know we had a particular design our brands had a particular identity and all of that really was a competitive advantage and we uh, well we had the benefit of a, a phenomenal creative director but also understanding that we we you know it's it's almost like you you engage and you respect uh, the, the best uh, craftsmen in that area mm. that you want to imbue your product or service with, with a dose of that. And you're not going to do it by, by going down. So I think everything you know, carries a particular message about what, what you want to do. Mm. Mm. It's a bit of the 
you know, this way, I'll describe, you know, so a kind of side story. My parents lived in Japan for, for a couple of years and, and I, rem- I was studying architecture at the time. So I, I went to visit and I became really uh, amazed to see how much, how almost every single interaction that I had was ritualized in one way or another and enriched the experience uh, in the process. So one day I went to a paper shop and I decided that I wanted to run a little experiment to buy the, uh, you know, least expensive thing that I could find in, in the store. And I settled on a pencil, I mean, literally one pencil. So the pencils were displayed in a, you know, a glass case. And let's say there were about 30 pencils there. And I started, you know, poking at the pencil. And the person, the, the woman, uh, saleswoman there would, you know, take it out, both hands, bow her head, presented in front of me. And every time I do this, and eventually I pick one and I try to pencil. Eventually I settled on one pencil. That's the one pencil. And then, you know, she grabbed the pencil, nod her head again, kind of acknowledging that this is the pencil that I had selected, uh, went out, got some silk paper, wrapped the pencil inside the silk paper, grabbed some gift paper, wrapped the pencil inside the gift paper, grabbed the bow, put it in the book, Grab the bag, put some silk paper in the bag, put the entire pencil on the bag, bow on the bag, bowing to me again, giving me the bag. I paid, I forget, $5 for this, and I just had like the most valuable pencil I had ever purchased in my life. And I was scared to burn it just because of all the <laughs> So, but ultimately, you know, and, and so this is a very, uh, you're present and you can see everything that's happening. I think mm. that. The same thing happens at an unconscious level mm. and that really people, uh, and they may not know this, but instinctively I think that people can read when somebody is doing something uh, with care, with attention, and mm. when somebody is not. Mm. Um, I think that in the same way that we are very good at, for example, um, discerning if somebody is is smiling or laughing mm. uh, generally. Mm. Uh, we're equally good, but more unconsciously able to discern, uh, you know, with what value something has been created and what's delivered. So, you know, to think, I've come across too many times other people don't care about the ultimate delivery of something, thinking, well, you know, people are not going to notice. Um, and I, I disagree completely. I think that people always notice. Mm. And, and one of two things, they either notice unconsciously or they can notice consciously and then they may not just not say anything mm-hmm. about it, good or bad, but it doesn't mean that they haven't uh, received the message about mm-hmm. what, what went into the creation process of whatever it is that you're delivering. So I think some of the intent uh, from the beginning just needs to be there. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be a general intent. And mm-hmm. at least that's the way that you know, we felt we wanted to engage with, uh, mm. with our audience, with our team, with, with other people we worked with. Uh, and that's also why many times, you know, we've been just as selective with people working for us as we have people working with us, so partners and others. And it, it wasn't just an issue of saying, you know, mm. you know how much can we make with you guys, etc. And the more, the more strategic the partner, the more likely it was that we weren't to make sure that we had a partner, at least, you know, if not sharing all of our values, you know, could be could be as well aligned as we could. And having the benefit of a company, you know, where we didn't have any external investors, we could take the high road by saying, you know, I mean, just 
just don't want to work with you guys or we don't feel that you're the right party to work with us. You know, other people, again, it ends up being a privilege, but it was something very important uh, to us to, to deliver um, from, from the get-go. So, you know, arguably, the, you know, the, the real privilege of running a private company is, is, is a little bit of that. So, question, Ashley. So, <clears throat> as you grow your organization, you go from one to 50 to 100 to 150, right? Then bars number 150, that's the extent of, you know, how you can maintain relationship with one another. Then the company continued to grow 200, 300, 500, etc. So there is a, uh, the challenge for any founders or executives is how do you actually ritualize this message, these core values beyond the 150? You know, one may say uh, it's easier, quote unquote, to maintain uh, ritual, right? These values, these conversations, this focus on, on what's important for, from the founders on top downwards to everyone else in the organization. How do you continue to, you know, perpetuate that as the company grow at a really fast rate? So, so first, you know, our business got to, you know, under under hundred people. Um, so, you know, maybe we didn't have that. Uh, one of the ways that we did uh, did it is by really creating uh, subunits, uh, you know, so small units that might typically have between, you know, four and eight people. And uh, they typically hold themselves, you know, very accountable to each other. I mean, this is an environment where, you know, people will not um, stay quiet if they feel that somebody is just not delivering what they need to be delivering to the team. And they first would address that within the team. And then if they can't address it within the team, then they would, you know, bring it further up. Uh, You know, what we've seen over time is that you know, there's, I mean, it gets harder, you know, if you're in a high growth environment, obviously doing that. So I'm talking in our case, you know, we have a, a, a gradual organic growth and it's easier to manage. Uh, so, you know, that that's one of the elements. The second one is, you know, we have a, a filter of just already the, the type of people that we bring on board. I'd say that probably about 60 or 70% of the people on the team came from within our communities. So they're people who were active on our forums or that, and somebody reached out and you know, basically said, look, you know, I've been doing this for so long. Or, or they kind of came on our radar and wanted to become more active at the core of, of the, the organization or the business. Um, so they, they already had all of the values of the passion. And so, you know, when you, when you have that, we've really, uh, almost never been successful at using uh, recruitment agencies to bring the type of people that we want to the table. Uh, and most of the time it's been from word of mouth or, or people that, uh, that we've met with in the community or we can you know, put out the word uh, to, to our audience that you know, we're looking for so-and-so and more, more, more often than not, somebody will suddenly appear that, uh, that fits the criteria that we're looking for. And that's helped, uh, I think over the years, it's held the culture in place uh, rather well. Um, Beautiful. Our, yeah. So what about the internal process? Because uh, as, a, as, a, as a leader, as an executive, um, you had to ultimately, your decisions impacts everyone else, right? So how do you then cultivate your own decision accuracy, your, your decision power, as well as uh, hone your own grit? 
right? So that way you're not rattled by uncertainties coming your way and then you make certain emotional decisions and then that and then it turns out to be wrong, etc. So can you walk us a little bit through of the journey of, that you had to go through to um, cultivate these capabilities? Um, look, I think at the core and certainly in my thinking and, and decision making is, you know, you know, at any time that, you know, you, you cannot bet, you, you don't want to bet the house on any, on any one bet. So, you know, risk management is, uh, is a core skill that you develop over time. And the way that, that we had it was in our particular case, uh, we had the benefit of having, um, resilience by multiple brands. So the likelihood that any any one brand could something could happen at a one brand level was okay but it wouldn't disturb the whole shift and we have the same thing on the revenue front let's say you know with at least five major revenue uh, sources an ideal scenario each of them accounting for an equal uh, revenue proportion so putting that you know in, in five tranches of 20 percent just figuring out ways to to build resilience and then we're constantly uh, testing new new things but you know we're say we'll put anywhere between one and three people on a new project and uh wait to see the effect um if there is traction then we'll start putting a lot more effort behind it if it's not then you know it was a failed uh, uh test uh, and we you know we fail as as often as we succeed on that so it's just constant experimentation but for the most part you know after a while uh, you at least have a portion of the business that is running quite smoothly uh, overall. And so it's managing two, it's managing the parts that are running smoothly, reassessing, you know, how much longer do we believe those businesses would run smoothly? Is there something along the lines? You know, how rapidly are we building new businesses to manage the decline of the existing ones, as well as hopefully compensating and continuing to allow us to grow? Um, so, you know, there's just many different uh, variables in the mix. Um, I think that the, the cultural element of just the way that we've had in the past, you know, we have, uh, pro I, I could not think of a, of a team where we have more shared trust among the team. Hmm. And so uh, we, you know, we're very open at all times with what's going on. It's really tried to, to not compartmentalize. People are empowered from a very early stage. You know, the way that, that we like to talk about it for the longest time is, you know, typically companies may uh, set up certain um, operational guidelines for the potential that 3% of people coming into your organization could be dangerous or could do something bad to the business. So, you know, I need to build all of the defenses, et cetera, and processes and the reporting and accounting and, you know, expense reporting, blah, blah, blah. And we really didn't have any of that because we're like, you know, why do we want to make life miserable for 97% of people on the team mm. with, with that when we're just trying to protect for the 3%? And we're like, well, you know, when the 3%, occurs we'll handle that separately but mm. we don't need to to hurt everybody else in the business you know my so you defaulted on trust very much so i mm. mean look I, I don't know if it's you know my business partner is swedish i think that you know if you know anything about scandinavia is that scandinavia is really one of the highest uh, trust uh, regions in the world mm. and, and i think that there was some of that from the beginning really empowering our team uh, we've you know our experience has been 
that uh, the more you you entrust and empower an individual, uh, mm. you know, 90% of the time they'll rise up to the occasion mm. if 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 we've done a good job at picking the right individual from the beginning. I mean, mm. it's a really, you know, uh, that that level of confidence in them is, is essential. So we've done that. I think, you know, most people on the team would say that, you know, we've been very consistent in that and that we treat everybody like a grown-up. We're not here to run a, uh, you know, kindergarten and we treat everybody like they're, they're making a unique contribution in their, in their own area. And that's the type of people that, you know, we like working with. So that's, I think that's also been a, an important element of keeping that together. Hmm. What about the grit aspect of it? <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I, I'm not, uh, uh, what's her name again, uh, who wrote the book Grit? Uh, Angela you know, Duckworth. I, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, you, you know, I think very frequently about it. I, I don't know if this is something that, that you can teach. I mean, just the way that we've operationalized is, you know, we've also had the benefit of, uh, at the senior team to uh, really only lose a couple of people over the last 10 years mm. and uh, and so people have had the benefit of seeing the story and of realizing hey you know there was this inflection point and we could have gone past but you know Andrew and the rest of the team did this and they set us in this direction so typically what we would do on the circumstances like that you know we'd, we would uh, ask the team uh, you know we would share what's going on we'd say you know let's say whether it's a crisis or not, we say either we have a big problem, small problem, crisis, whatever it may be, we need your help uh, because we need to, to, to get this, uh, you know, if we don't handle this properly, you know, it's going to be a big problem. And then typically everybody kind of stops doing or at least spends a portion of what uh, allocates a portion of their time to helping us solve that problem and we all get, get on board together and we're all kind of helping. It's kind of, you know, everybody paints the house, puts the thing, and blah, 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 you know, helps along. And then when we're done, it's like everybody's, thank you very much. And then everybody goes back to, to doing what, what they're doing. But, you know, when we have this, there's, there's a, a camaraderie among everybody from the senior team to, to everybody in the company. And there's an understanding of, hey, we know what, what you know, if there's, if there's a team or a brand that's having problems, it's kind of, what do you need? How can we help? And then we will get all hands are on deck and we help and we fix it and then we move on until something else, uh, you know, another hole opens up and, and we need to fix that. Do you believe that I can be sort of tested? Yes, yes, new people join your team or, you know? Well, they may not be, you know, they, the new people join the team depends, um, you know, how senior they are coming in typically. Mm -hmm. Um, people will earn their seniority. We have had a tendency not to hire senior people. Uh, we, we haven't had the need for, and if we have that need, then typically we would rather hire uh, a consultant or a contractor that, that has a very unique skill that can uh, assist us for, for whatever time period it is. And then you know, that if it's somebody we feel we, need to, we would like to or need to work with on an ongoing basis, obviously it would be different. So, you know, we're not, again, so focused because um, the, the core of our team, uh, I'd say at least 60% uh, have worked with us for a minimum of five years and then within the core team, you know, a minimum of 10 years. So over that period of time, you know, you, you, 
you know, you build uh, a rapport, a friendship that uh, transcends a lot of things. So you, you kind of do that. Uh, perhaps also running a virtual organization means that we uh, surprisingly perhaps bond better together because you actually don't have the physicality somewhere. You have the opportunity to engage with each other. You know, you want to make the most of that. So it, it has not been our experience to be a problem with, with new people coming on the team. Mm. On the contrary, I think that you know, they uh, have the opportunity to demonstrate how they uh, are making their own contribution uh, at an early stage you know, with something because they, they hear all of the stories of all the other things that have been done before. Mm. So I ask these questions because, well, one, uh, I believe all entrepreneurs people who are eager to operationalize or build high-performing organizations or even better themselves as leaders, they want to cultivate these skills. That's my core belief, that these skills can be cultivated. And part of everything that you share really um, help demonstrate that it's not just knowledge, right? You have a theoretical level, it's not just experience, but through the narrative that you share with us, you really embody you know, your own journey, right? So it's not just from an empty place that you share these, these uh, stories. So however, you do have 30 plus years of experience doing it. So I wanted to perhaps share with the people who are listening to this, to this they are in the middle of building their a very new organization. They do want to get better at it. Is there a, some educational resources or books that you can send them to or do you believe that it's just you got to go through the process to really earn all that wisdom? Uh, look, it's uh, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I uh, it happened in my case. I started, as I said earlier, you know, I started architecture, so I didn't even have a business background. But I, you know, if there was one thing that I learned in architecture was you know learning to learn. Uh, so everything was a new project. So in a way, I set out to entrepreneurship. I was like very excited. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I'm becoming an entrepreneur. So now I just have to learn about entrepreneurship. And I, I think for the first uh, 10 years uh, of starting, I read, I mean, a book a week was probably about average. And I, I just, and I knew I just had to immerse myself in an area. And I was also following my instinct. You know, I let my, this go, um, you know, as far and wide as I felt, uh, you know, I was just absorbing absolutely everything that I could. And, uh, you know, as you... Uh, are there any books? Are, are there any books that comes to mind that you say, all right, if you're new at this, or if you're between the revenue of this, this and this, read these three books or no, anything, anything like I think that? that the, you know, books that... Uh, there were just books that had particular... Uh, relevance for me at different times, you know, I think that, you, you know, and I can talk to to how certain books inspired me mm. or, or how important they were uh, in that, you know, two that have been coming up uh, recently just because they really played a very important role in my thinking of uh, when I was starting this last business, uh, you know, one was called, is called, um, uh, what well, one is called uh, Getting Everything You Can Out of All You've Got. And it's uh, a title that, uh, yeah, I mean, the book just uh, caught my attention because of the title. Mm. Uh, I'll put over that in a second. And the other one was uh, Now Discover Your Strength. Mm. And so there were two 
uh, and they're relatively, you know, now they're probably about uh, you know, 15 or 20 years old. But I think that for the first one, uh, there was an important element. You know, as an entrepreneur, uh, you always think that somebody else knows something better than you do and that you need to spend a lot of time uh, it kind of fixing the things that you don't know or that you're not doing properly and so on and so forth and you can have a chip. Or at least at the time, you know, I certainly I was very conscious about all the things that I wasn't doing properly and kind of certain lack of confidence in, in my own ability to, to run the business. Um, and, and the book, uh, the, the Now the Start of the Strength, really kind of allowed me to get, I mean, basically the, the premise of the book is that, you know, if you're spending all of your time fixing things that you're not good at, uh, well, one, you pretty much can spend the rest of your life doing that because there's always something you're not going to be good at. Uh, and if instead you focus in polishing, you know, first identifying and polishing the things that you're truly unique at or that you're gifted at, uh, you're going to have a much better chance of leveraging those gifts uh, going forward. Uh, the second book with, you know, Now Discover Your Strength really does the same thing. I'd always been concerned, you know, you start, and I'm probably one of the few angel investors, I always start by telling people that uh, I'm going to try very hard to figure out ways for you not to raise money and to certainly think about you not wanting or needing the money. And But this was from experience, my own problem at the time, you know, there was such a long list about what I felt I needed to start my business, you know, I need the money, so I need to find investors, I need to get other people, I, I need these people with those technical skills to do this. I mean, it's just all of the things you don't have, all of the pieces. And, and ultimately what, uh, you know, now Discover Your Strength helped me to do is to, he says, look, just you know, sit down, take a deep breath and start writing a, you know, you asset list. You know, what, what can you think of all of the things that you have that might be considered unique to you? And, and I did that exercise and you ended up and I looked at it and I was like, ah, oh, that's not bad. You know, I mean, there's really a lot of very unique things. And it gave me a level of confidence. And the combination of the two was like, you know what? I'm just going to try it differently. So I did everything on my own. I mean, I started, you know, so, I mean, I, I still get What's be, that? Be, before you move on, can you share with us what are the those two superpowers that you have? Uh, well, I don't know if I would synthesize them, but I think that you know definitely one of the the ability to uh, see very far. So friends, you know, says that he considers that I have a telescopic vision. Mm. So I, I'm really able to to come to logical conclusions about something uh, mm. fairly far out, you know, perhaps, you know, same sense that, that I had when I, I saw the first smartphone and, and understood that uh, in very earliest days that everybody was going to have a smartphone when, you know, the probably best quote that I recall from the time was that only geeks would ever want to have a computer in their pocket. So that proved to not be the case. And, and I felt very strongly about that. Um, in the same vein, for some reason, you know, this kind of uh, very hard approach to business, perhaps merging, uh, you know, I tend to have a more design and creative sensibility now fused with, with a, you know, business acumen, but somehow uh, also not necessarily things that seem to uh, go together very well. But I felt strongly that that's what I wanted to do um, from the beginning, which is why, you know, some of the elements that we said 
or that I mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, the design playing a, a unique role. Um, I think I have also a pretty good intuition uh, where I'm able to uh, find people uh, and understand very rapidly with people uh, whether we are aligned uh, in our mindsets or not. So, uh, and that has allowed me to, you know, find an amazing business partner and then to also attract uh, other similarly minded people to, to the business, um, just to pick, uh, just to pick two. Mm. So that actually segues really nicely to my next question, right? Going back to the juicy question that we promised the people who are listening, the consciousness aspect of it. So now that you have exited from the company and can you share with us what inspired you to your interest, your new passion around consciousness? Um, look, it's, uh, it's a confluence of, of any number of things. Uh, you know, one of them started around, uh, you know, early time with my son. My son was uh, two years old at the time and I started asking myself, you know, what would make me a good father? Mm. And I asked myself that for, for a while and eventually I had the epiphany that uh, if my son could leave home uh, at whatever age, but let's say 18, uh, with the best habits that I've been able to uh, form in him or support in him, then I think he has a huge leg up in life. You know, correcting uh, bad habits is, uh, is very difficult, very time consuming and very draining. So it's not... You know, it's kind of starting with a depleted battery is not exactly the amount, uh, you know, what you, you care for. And, and personally, I don't think that any amount of money would compensate for that. You know, it's just not something I believe in. As I mentioned earlier, I actually think that uh, money tends to be a shortcut uh, as opposed to one that uh, uh, pushes you to uh, bring more creative thinking to problems as opposed to assuming that you can fix problems with money. Uh, and that's definitely also a skill that over time in the business, you know, has been amazing to have is that we solve problems uh, using our heads and our hands as opposed to, to trying to mitigate our ability to, to think through those problems. So, you know, I was, I was just thinking through that. So, you know, focused on habit formation, I realized, you know, as I was beginning to study habits that, you know, number one habit that... Uh, he's going to pick up on are going to be his parents uh, and so myself included and uh, I was like okay well, that's interesting so that means now I need to start focusing on my habits you know and how the good ones the bad ones and you know what I'm going to do about that and so it made me very conscious about uh, you know that that element then I had uh, you know I, I think I, I was well served on a number of fronts about uh, you know for this journey then I had uh, an episode of a double heart attack. You did? About, yeah. Oh, about man. four years ago. And uh, which also kind of, it's a, it's a moment. I mean, there was a punchline in the end, but, uh, you know, for, for 72 hours, I had a double heart attack and uh, a cardiac catheterization to demonstrate that. And, uh, and really, you know, it's a very centering moment, you know, when, when you're confronted with your mortality. And in my case, I... Uh, uh, it was interesting synthesis, you know, first, uh, you know, just a lot of guilt towards my two-year-old son and, you know, my uh, just very young wife. I mean, young in terms of how long we were married. 
Um, the second one was kind of, uh, you know, sense of really no regret. I was very, uh, I was very glad that, you know, there's, I wasn't blaming anybody for where I was. I was very happy that I was in a time and place that I had uh, brought myself, uh, which is exactly what I had been wanting to do all along. So that felt very liberating. Uh, the third one, a kind of uh, a, a really sense of peace. I mean, I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm here if I, if I have to go, you know, I, I mean, I've done my best. I'd, I'd rather not, but if I have to, well, you know, nothing more to do. So really kind of a, a very serene uh, moment in that respect. And then the fourth one was kind of just a bit of, uh, you know, regret insofar as I felt that I'd built a very st- strong foundation uh, in, you know, for my life, for my business. But, uh, you know, when people look at a foundation, there's nothing to look at. And you can be as strong as you want underground, but you know, people are like, well, what am I looking at? And I said, well, you know, it'd kind of be nice to have just a little bit more time to put something on top of that foundation so that people could, could have a better look about what my intent was. And then shortly thereafter, I was also a friend, a dear friend, invited me to a meditation retreat. Uh, and I came to that, it was actually just after, I was at TED at the time, about three years ago. And, uh, and for some reason, while I was at TED, you know, one of the top things on my mind was about the, the, re- the idea of reconciling in my own head, the, the difference between the me and the we, okay? And uh, which is actually something you know, on a personal note, as you know, people who have noticed this from my accent, you know, I've lived in in ten countries on four continents, and you know, I've been exposed to a lot of different cultures, uh, and uh, different cultures have different levels of understanding of the me and the we, uh, and it's something that uh, I had never really reconciled. And so I go really knowing nothing. I've never meditated before. I've never been in a lotus position, and there I am for two and a half days. Uh, with about 50 people and uh, going into very deep uh, meditation. And I'm there with this story in my mind, like, okay, well, let's at least make this thing productive. You know, this is what I'm, uh, you know, the question that I have or the challenge that I have. And uh, I, and I was able to really do a full synthesis of that uh, in, in the two and a half days. It's almost like, you know, if you've had the experience, you know that you have this total synthesis, you, you have the essence of a thought that is able to come out and I had like this nugget and this nugget came out as a, as a poem that I wrote uh, after deep breathing exercise and that synthesized, you know, what, how I had experienced this uh, between the me and the we. And in the process, I also had, um, you know, at least uh, what I was then told, uh, apparently something called the overview effect, which is uh, what astronauts experience uh, seeing Earth from outer space. Um, it's a very unique experience. It really feels like, you know, you're connecting with uh, with the whole universe. And uh, and I brought all of that together. And I, I guess from that moment on, I was pretty hooked on the on the whole consciousness journey. Uh, so bringing that, you know, between me thinking about being a good father, thinking about my mortality and coming out of that, and suddenly being awakened to something that for the first time felt that I could uh, really uh, think of myself outside of myself, mm. uh, which was not something I've been used to. Uh, and not, I think, again, back, you know, definitely the, the, the heart attack episode, you know, already makes you uh, much less concerned about your ego. I mean, 
it, it liberates you in so many different ways to, mm. to think about more meaningful things. Uh, that uh, you know, suddenly I had these three things coming together in a relatively short period of time, about 18 months, that, mm. that seemed to really gel a particular path. And ever since then, I've just continued on this uh, um, analysis. I was then, you know, part of also, I think the fourth step is that I, I came to a point in my life where I had, uh, uh, you know, I was seeing a lot of things um, that, uh, but I had been seeing a lot of things that disagreed for at least 20, 25 years, but uh, that where I didn't do anything about it, either because I felt, you know, I was too young, not smart enough or not knowledgeable enough in the particular area. So, you know, what do I have to contribute? Somebody else much smarter than myself and much more, uh, you know, deeply involved is going to come and, and do something about it. And as I grew older, I kind of felt that uh, I, I actually saw very few people doing something about it, at least not that. And I said, okay, well, I guess now I need to add my own two cents to the mix. <clears throat> and I, I decided to support uh, uh, a nonprofit uh, financially. And as they onboarded me, they asked me a question. They said, listen, Andrew, you know, we really don't need you to be passionate about everything because um, we cover you know, many different areas. It'd be really helpful to us if we understood what your core passion was. And uh, that question uh, then led me on a journey of you know a couple of months and eventually i came out to understand that really my core passion is uh, the way uh, understanding how we distribute knowledge uh, mm. in the system and how we grow through that knowledge i think that it's uh, it's absolutely core to my thinking i think that our entire society is ultimately based about uh, based on this diffusion of knowledge mm. which really and i'm using the word knowledge i think they touch upon its knowledge and wisdom i prefer to go further into the wisdom, but mm -hmm. uh, but really those two elements are critical to me. And I see that, you know, the more we veer away from considering that that's an important pursuit uh, as a society, I think the more bad things happen or the more people mm -hmm. decide to, uh, uh, you know, create create smoke and mirrors to, to hide this. So, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a very complex thing. It's something I'm, I'm obviously having run a media company for, for 15 years gives me a little bit of an insight in that as well. Mm. Um, but, but really that was, that was key. And I believe that uh, somehow as I was developing that thesis of uh, diffusion of knowledge, I uncovered any number of other things uh, that started making sense of the world for me about how things operated and why certain things were, were not functioning properly. Uh, at least, uh, you know, or, or decaying or, or dying or, or something like that. Obviously, I had some experience in that. And I lived in Venezuela for a number of years, a country that you know, I absolutely adore. And to, to see a country uh, so rich in potential uh, mm. and the wealthiest country in Latin America to now be a, a humanitarian crisis, kind of mm. very sad to see. And also showcases, you know, some of the difficulties in, in assuming you know, and as an entrepreneur, I look at it and say, well, you know, this is like has infinite potential. Mm. And, uh, and, and now went from the possibility of infinite potential to, to really an incredible amount of hurt uh, in the process with, with people having to yeah, suffer all, all kinds of things from, from hunger to, to having to depart the country and so on and so forth. So, mm. you know, it's something that, that was very much on my mind and uh, part of the process of this uh, knowledge led me to a structure, a framework 
of trying to understand, you know, what happens in this diffusion of knowledge. And, uh, and I saw that. Before you share the framework, um, I want to ask you a follow-up question about just some terminologies that you use. Yeah. Um, so there's no shortage of information, right, given the internet, right? There's literally, I, I don't remember the number of, you know, right. information so, that comes out. So let me define that. Yeah. Uh, what I mean is, you know, if you, if you Google it, you'll see that this, uh, since about the 70s, from the, the advent of, of, you know, personal computers slightly earlier, um, you know, a new word came out called data to define uh, the, the, this raw information that was coming out of computers. Uh, so really we have four buckets. So at the lowest end, we have data. Uh, so think, you know, it's, it's vast in quantity. I mean, it's humongous and growing exponentially these days. Um, but it has, on a, on, a, uh, on a point basis, it has almost no value. I mean, a data point has almost no value. So huge quantity, very low data. The second bucket is information, and information you have slightly less of, very slightly more value. Then you go up the curve, and you, know, you start getting into an exponential curve. With knowledge, you have considerably less amount uh, but considerably higher value. I mean, it really grows very rapidly from that. And then wisdom is at the very top of the exponential curve, and it's very tiny and incredible value. I mean, almost you know, invaluable. So, um, well, what, 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 what actually can you give us some examples? Giving those because I get it, right? I understand intellectually grok it, and just for for people who are listening, what would be an idea of, let's say, knowledge and then wisdom? What would be like an example so that way they can... I think that knowledge would be um, you know, an example of you know, how to treat a particular disease okay. or you know, that. So, I mean, really, you know, a whole field of whether it's a technical field, engineering and so on and so forth, about the functioning of, you know, of mathematics, whatever you want. I think all of that sure. market is really contained within uh, you know a, a, a vastly growing a very interesting bucket okay and then um, wisdom an example would be you know wisdom for me would be things that that transcend knowledge I mean there really is a synthesis of that I mean wisdom is kind of thinking about you know the yeah, how to think about the the love that a mother has for her child whether it is you know, in Africa and Asia and South America and the United States, etc. I mean, there's not, you know, there's a there's a natural uh, state of things to to that wisdom or to think about, you know, any number of uh, uh, sayings, you know, pervasive in, in multiple cultures about, you know, the the way uh, you treat others will have an impact on the way they treat you. I mean, things that just, you know, and somebody asked me at some point, I said, you know, what do you mean? Obviously, I've been asked the question a lot of times, you know, yeah. what do you mean by wisdom? And I said, look, from my point of view is wisdom is the, the largest amount of knowledge contained within the lowest, the smallest piece of code. Mm. Uh, that's what became also an important element tying it back to the habits is that, you know, knowledge and wisdom, they're ultimately pieces of codes. You know, mm. what, what I find interesting, or at least the way I've been thinking about it, is that we are all made, you know, it's like this... Uh, podcast, this interview, you know, we're all made up of stories, actually. Uh, we're hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands of stories, from very tiny ones to bigger ones. And, and I see those stories as pieces of code, 
and uh, and I think there's good stories and there's bad stories. And wisdom has a tendency to be the, the cream of the crop. I mean, it's kind of the, the caviar of uh, in, the, in the knowledge packet. You know, you really an ideal scenario, and that's the only thing that you would like to to be coded with. Um, but that tends to not be the case. So uh, you know, it becomes about understanding your environment, understanding well how I'm. How are you being coded? How conscious? How conscious are you to that coding? How unconscious you are. So really, that brings us, you know, to the original question. This is really where this emergence of consciousness came to think of yourself and what you do and how you've done it and your past, your future, and in in being able to see that coding and and trying to expand upon it, and then also you know look under the the hood and say, well, you know, where did this piece of coding come from? Do I like it? Do I want to change it? How do I change it? What do I change it to? You know, things like that. And you can only do that by being in a state that allows you to be conscious of of that uh, process. And it's definitely not an easy uh, thing to do uh, for many different reasons. I think that. Uh, because, because it is meta meta, right? How do you become aware of the awareness itself? That in itself is like it takes a lifetime to do it. And then also too, when people uh, hear about oh I'm awakened, they assume like once you awaken and that's it. But the reality is is a moment by moment continued choice of okay now I'm now I'm aware now I'm aware now I'm aware, and it very easily it takes no effort at all, no energy at all to go back to you know, uh, being affected by circumstances and believing yeah. those stories because they're so ingrained in, in, in all of us. Yeah. I, and as you say, I think you, you, you get there by, you know, progressively, uh, you know, tackling point by point. Um, it's a, the problem is, you know, everything is a dynamic system. So, you know, as you, as you tackle or heal one, another one may spring up. And so it's, it's a continuous pro- process, but at least now, you, you're giving the tools to, to do that, which previously you just didn't have to, to be able to look under the hood as opposed to being, so you become an actor and a participant and a creator in the process as opposed to being affected uh, or just a spectator and at that, you know, where you don't have the tools to, to engage at that level. And I think that that's what, uh, in my opinion, or at least that's my pursuit within the, the consciousness movement is to, is to get to that. So have you, you know, since we're at a conference for a good two days, have you seen anything promising that will help, you know, scale the awareness of oneself? Look, I think it's early days, you know, I would treat it uh, like the birth of the smartphone. Mm. Uh, so since I've lived through that entire story, uh, rather intimately, let's say that we're in year, we're entering kind of year one of a, of a more meaningful mass adoption of, of, of this. Uh, and there's many flavors of it, perhaps in the same way that there were multiple operating systems in the, in the smartphone wars. Uh, here, uh, there's different flavors with people coming at it, uh, you know, either with the, the plant-based medicine, with the uh, uh, technology, the meditation, and subsets of meditation, you know, maybe exposure to to nature, which would be another one. Uh, I've seen some very interesting uh, people doing some amazing stuff there. Um, a deep, uh, I mean, just breathing 
you know, there's there's an entire new body around that. I mean, you can think of anything simpler uh, to affect change and to to rethink the way you breathe. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are emerging, and I think you alluded to it earlier. Very exciting. Um, do I think? I don't know if I I have the. I have the certainty that that this will happen and that it will have an impact and that it will touch as many billions of people as the, the smartphone revolution has. What flavor that will be right now, I don't know. I think it's too early. Uh, so it's more about a focus on, on, on the space as a whole that is meaningful to me. Uh, and as you also alluded to earlier, is to see the caliber of the people entering the conversation. Uh, and uh, you know what impact that may have on a, on a going forward basis. So you know, I, I think that we know where we're going, uh, and it will grow with uh, increased intensity. Uh, what the dominant flavor is, I don't know. And I actually hope I was talking about it yesterday. I hope that actually it doesn't end up being a war of operating systems of the you know the drug camp saying no, my my solution is better. We get to better consciousness doing this, or no, it's the other ones. You know, you can only achieve it through meditation and so on and so forth. I, I think that that kind of would be a sad outcome. So hopefully, it's actually everybody coming together and, and just realizing that you know what needs to happen is a synthesis of understanding that there will be different strokes for different folks, and some people who uh, who can attain you know what they're searching for via drugs or technology or meditation, a combination thereof, etc., is something that should be looked at. I also don't think that we necessarily have that portfolio uh, uh, understanding today about what, you know, how would you engage with somebody and rapidly be able to determine what the best uh, path for that person would be uh, and to, uh, you know, helping a friend or helping a family member, etc. you know, would you recommend drugs to them, would you recommend technology, meditation, so on and so forth. So hopefully we'll, we'll have a better sense of that as well. Uh, and also have, uh, which I hope to see that some of the people who are most involved uh, funding certain areas, uh, uh, individual areas, may actually become equally focused and really take a very broad understanding of, of something that is, you know, whether you want to call it healing or path to consciousness or whatever your flavor for that is, that, that they can see that, that the entire ecosystem needs to be supported and not just one flavor of it. So that would be my, you know, certainly the way I'm starting to think about it. So you are, you are one of the converted, right? You had a, you had a, you had a, what do you call it? The, um, the overview effect experience. Yeah. Right. You yeah. you go to these conferences. You're engaging in a very metaphysical type conversations right now. Um. So and also people who are listening to this, they already are bought into this conscious conversations, right? Because they we inquire about what is what is what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be fulfilled? So on and so forth. That's sure. the purpose of this podcast. But to the people who are not yet um, converted yet about just the, the inquiry of all of this. What would you say to them? Hey, you know, I have, I'm now here. I've achieved quote unquote success, monetary success, so forth. And um, this is the thing that I'm thinking about these days. And you might want to consider that too. What would you say to people who are not even aware of this consciousness movement? Look, I think that there needs to be a starting point. So the interesting thing, you know, I 
So as I say, you know, I started my first company when I was 23 years old, um, and uh, for the longest time, you know, you, you're battling uh, or you're on a quest, and you think that there's like literally only one thing you need to think about, and if you don't think about that one thing, you're wasting your time doing other things you should be doing, and the one thing is, you know, build your business, make money, and so on and so forth. And and really, at one point, you know, after a number of cycles, let's say, you know, within seven or eight years of, of thinking like that, you kind of you know, I came to a conclusion where I was like, well, that's really, if, if I do just that, there's something wrong in the whole message here. And I started, you know, building an outline that I called the seven pillars about what I felt the, the things you needed to look at should be. And that was, um, and in no particular order, uh, you know, the, the personal, the professional, the financial, Health and fitness, faith and spirituality. Um, and I always miss a couple. Uh, but let's say I understood there was a broad uh, spectrum of things I needed to, to, to think about, at least, that nobody had really uh, properly verbalized. You know, I'd met so, you know, you asked me earlier, I had read hundreds of business books, you know, probably getting close, and I still have every single one of them, so I, I can attest to that. Uh, and, you know, none of the literature I had ever read, you know, even goes, touches upon this thing. It's like, you know, how do you build a life on top of, a, uh, of, of being an entrepreneur and how do the, the two commingle? And I got to understand that if, if there wasn't at one point, it doesn't have to be, there will never be a perfect balance. So, and the way that I started thinking about it is like, you know, you, you need to, you know, each of the pillars can, can be at zero or ten. Uh, you, if, if all of the pillars are at zero, you basically, you're dead. And if all of the pillars are at 10, you're not human. Uh, you're probably <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's going to be a baseline somewhere and, you know, you may have, you know, whether you have, you know, you're doing poorly physically or something, or it's a mild injury or a bigger one, or you're having financial problems, you know, you kind of need to, to set what's your map at any given time. And then you know that you have a hundred percent of energy to dedicate. Uh, and if you dedicate 100% of your energy to only one pillar over a very long period of time, it means that you're not applying any amount of energy to any one of the other ones and they'll decay. Uh, and if they do that, that means that at one point you're going to have to put a lot of energy there. So ultimately what makes the most sense is just to, one, become aware of it, please think about it, add it as a, as a list of, they may be secondary or, or, or third degree priorities, but they cannot be zero. You know, you need to think about them. And then decide how much you're willing to allocate to each of them. It may just be 5% here, 5%. You can still do a lot by saying, okay, seven pillars, I'll allocate 30% to my six pillars, but I still allocate 70% to just the, you know, the professional one, the business. That's fine. Um, but it, you know, it just wasn't something that I was really doing. I was like all had in the business. And there was just nothing. I mean, it was like anything else just didn't make any sense to me. And, uh, and that helped me to, to begin to build this framework about, you know, what, that you need to build more than one thing at a time. Um, and it applied both within the business, that it's not just an understanding, it's not just about making money within the business. There are a lot of other things that you need to think about. Um, and so it just gave me a more granular uh, vision of what I wanted to do than, than where I had started at. Thank you, Andrew. Let's uh, leave it at that. What a beautiful way to complete our conversation. We went a lot of different spaces in this uh, interview. 
Thank you so much for dropping、um, your wisdom, your experience, and your knowledge.、Uh, ha- yeah, I, I, I have it that this would really help propagate, right? Really disseminate、uh, the knowledge of the world. So thank you so much. Really, really appreciate you. Thank you, CK, and thanks to your audience also. Beautiful.